welcome, uh, welcome everybody, and uh, and let's get going. Uh, the sharp-eyed among you will have noted a slight title change for the event. Um, this was originally called After the Meaningful Vote, um, and various people were emailing us yesterday saying, "Are you cancelling the event?" And we went. That's mad. We have a great panel, and it's even more interesting than it might have been with the meaningful vote. Uh, so all we had to do was delete a few words. So we're now just going to call it "What Next for Brexit." But obviously, your questions can range uh, range more widely. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm Program Director for Brexit at the Institute for Government. So welcome to this hashtag IFG Brexit event. And I'm very delighted to be joined by most of my panel. Uh, and if our final panelist arrives, that's great. If not, there's just more time to grill the others. So on my immediate left is the Right Honourable Hilary Benn, MP, former Secretary of State for uh, lots of things. Um, but most notably in this context, the very distinguished chair of that giant exiting the EU committee, which I think produced a report that all your members agreed this well, week. Only the second report we've ever agreed unanimously. <laughs> so that was quite an achievement given the range of membership that is on that. Um, so that was, uh, that was on Sunday that that uh, proposal was released. Um, Hilary was also the author of one of the two take-back control amendments that were on the order paper last week, the uh, amendment that was passed, the business motion, the Dominic Grieve amendment, disapplying some standing orders. And Hillary had a very similar amendment, rejecting both the Prime Minister's deal and no deal that was on the order paper. Obviously, nobody got the chance to vote on on Tuesday because of the Prime Minister's decision to delay the vote. Um, I've got his speech in the Hansard debate here. Uh, let's say he's not very positive about some of the things. The government spent two years trying to agree what to ask for and the result was the contortion that was the Chequers proposal, an attempt to keep the border open and save friction-free trade. But then he went on at the end to say, so he didn't like what the Prime Minister had uh, offered the nation. All of us are going to have to compromise and we're going to have to find a way forward that the majority can agree on. The sooner we can move forward and find a solution to the problem in the time that remains, implicitly the better. So that's Hillary's position. Then on my far left, um, slightly ironically, is, my, uh, is Daniel Moylan. Daniel is not an MP. We, uh, uh, we were talking to the ERG about whether they'd be able to find somebody this morning, but they seem to think they'd have other things on their mind. So we don't have anyone from the European Research Group. But we wanted to make sure that we had somebody who was a committed lever on the panel. Daniel uh, is very active on Twitter. Uh, on that. Daniel is a former advisor to Boris as mayor and is also, and I think this is really relevant given uh, what's going on in Parliament today and potentially in the weeks to come, is a Conservative activist. So he is uh, one of those Conservative Party members who may ultimately get to decide who will be our next Prime Minister. Uh, so Daniel has uh, agreed to be, as he says, my backstop made flesh. Uh, when I called him last week to say I need to go ahead with this and I can't do it without somebody representing leave on the panel. So thank you very much, Daniel, for coming. And then on my other side, I have Anna Subri. Anna, you know, very well known to anyone following the Brexit event. I think this is the first time we've welcomed Anna to the Institute for Government. It's been really great to have you here. And one of the uh, probably biggest thorns in the Prime Minister's side from the Conservative benches, maybe not, but also a real advocate that, uh, of people's votes. She said in the withdrawal debate, a withdrawal agreement is indeed a blindfolded Brexit that fails to deliver on the promises made, not just by the Leave campaign, but I am sorry to say by my own government. Uh, 
And then she goes on to say, no one should be under any illusions about how bad a place the backstop will be. Obviously, Anna thinks that the answer is to put it back to the people in a people's vote. And then finally, on my far right, uh, Stella Creasy, MP. Uh, Stella contacted me last week with some very interesting ideas about actually how do we try and create a degree of consensus uh, about what to happen next. And I thought that would be quite an interesting additional view to have from the panel. So let's get going. What I'm going to do is just put a few questions to the panel and then loads of time for questions and we will finish dead at 9.30. So, Hillary, uh, you, your amendment probably would have passed, the Dominic Reeve amendment passed. You say there's a majority, no majority in the uh, Commons for no deal. But what do you think would happen whether or not the Prime Minister comes back with some tweaks, you know, whether or not this is Prime Minister comes back with some tweaks or another Prime Minister comes back with some tweaks or something else. But if we go on the scenario that we thought we were working on, the Prime Minister was going off, get something, some side letters or whatever about the withdrawal agreement. And then she said, uh, Robin Walker, I think yesterday under pressure from Yvette Cooper, said the government would schedule the meaningful vote uh, relatively early in the new year before mm -hmm. the 21st of January deadline, even though uh, a strict reading of the Withdrawal Act suggests it's not absolutely required to do, and I know various of your side were very sceptical about the value of government assurances uh, without being legally obliged to do things. But what did you think with the choreography would work out in the sort of next sort of weeks? We would have a meaningful vote, the government would lose its withdrawal, but then what does Parliament do? It's very easy for Parliament to say no to things. It's much harder for Parliament to actually do something. Well, as your question implies, Jill, there's a lot of moving pieces, and depending what is announced just after 8 o'clock this evening, there may be another rather important moving piece if there turns out there's going to be a leadership election of the Conservative Party for a new <laughs> Prime Minister. Uh, not perhaps the most uh, apposite time to be doing that, given the crisis that the country faces. I think the first question, it's a technical one, is... When the withdrawal agreement comes back, is it a resumption of the debate that we interrupted, or is it a fresh one? And David Livington, when I questioned him on this yesterday, said, to be honest, it depends whether there is a material change to the withdrawal agreement with the political declaration, yeah. such that the government would have to announce, in the terms of the Act, we've uh, reached a new uh, political agreement on a draft. That's the first point. Secondly, I can't conceive myself, given the position that the European yeah. Union has taken, that any side letter, any codicil, um, any document is going to change the judgment of the House of Commons. And therefore, the sooner it is clear that Parliament doesn't accept the deal that the Prime Minister has negotiated and brought back, uh, the better in the sense we now have to turn our attention yeah. to what on earth we are going to do. And secondly, the purpose of part two of my yeah. amendment was to take no deal off the table because I think it's a it's a kind of fraud to suggest that we're going to leave the European Union with no deal whatsoever. I don't believe any responsible government would do that. I don't think Parliament would sanction it. So why pretend that this is going to happen? Now I know that doesn't go down awfully well with those who are advocating a um, slam the door as I said in the House yesterday, slam the door and shout over your shoulder, well, you can forget the money as we march off into the sunset type of Brexit. And therefore, why don't we take that off the table? Because then that really will concentrate the minds of the government, 
and indeed of Parliament in deciding what on earth we're going to do next. And to complete the answer, it seems to me there are two broad options. Either the government shifts approach and says, OK, it's going to be EEA and a customs union as our approach, because that is probably where the government was going to end up, although it has been unable to say it because of the wretched red lines. Because if you want to ensure an open border and friction free trade, there's no other way of doing it. Or uh, the question will have to be put back to the people because Parliament can't agree. And it seems to me those are the two possibilities now, because I'm not sure there's another one. So, Henry, you talk about Parliament taking no deal off the table, but yeah. actually, no deal is the one thing that really is on the table I know that. I know because that. you passed yeah. the Withdrawal Act. So I know that. Yeah, I know Daniel that. only has to sort of sit and wait for Parliament not to do anything else, and we crash out. I mean, that's, you know, Parliament sold that pass in the summer, didn't well, it? Well, what Parliament legislates for, it can change. As we've learned in the last few days, what is government policy <laughs> up until a moment is no longer government policy because government policy has changed. And that, you know, demonstrated by the vote mm -hmm. this week. Um, I think one has to distinguish, in fairness, there's the law and there's politics. And are you really telling me that a government, if the House of Commons votes and says we're not leaving without an agreement, thank you very much, the government will say, well, that was jolly interesting in a context of us supposedly taking back control, but uh, you, we're not interested in what you've got to say and we're going to go off and do what we're going to do anyway as the government. Because if that is what any government is going to do, then our democracy is in really big trouble. Anna, what's the route to a people's vote that you sort of now see sort of emerging through the thicket? Do you think the chances have gone up? I keep on getting asked whenever I do any media, I get asked, what's the, have the chance of no deal gone up? Have the chances of a people's vote gone up? Um, so, well, the you first thing I'd like to say is that I absolutely agree with everything that Hillary mm. says. Um, and I hope people, if it's one of the things that you take away, is the fact that there is a degree of cross-party working and agreement, the likes of which we've mm. probably never seen. Um, and indeed, I signed Hillary's mm. amendment, yep. um, and equally, obviously, uh, was one of the first people to sign Dominic's uh, amendment. Um, and as Hillary identifies, uh, voted, we all voted for each other's amendments. And mm. it's somewhat ironic that at the moment, all the uproar about the interruption of the debate on Monday um, by the Prime Minister pulling the vote. Um, some of the loudest critics of that are the very people who were almost, I think it's just over a year now, uh, were threatening people like me with deselection, uh, calling me a traitor, a mutineer, and so on and so forth, led by newspapers like the Daily Telegraph. When we defied the government, uh, we voted against the three-line whip and we got the very mm. meaningful vote that they are now all complaining isn't actually be taking place. It is one of the many profound ironies of what is undoubtedly not just a crisis mm. uh, but a terrible mm. mess. And today mm. I sit before you having been embarrassed to be a member of parliament on Monday. I'm now embarrassed to call myself a conservative and I can only apologise for the atrocious behaviour of some of my colleagues. It's time to put the national interest mm. first. Look, she's, we are in a dreadful mess, as I say, so what are the ways out? Mm. There is an impasse in government, and the only way through that is to take this back to the British people. It actually does solve the problem. And I don't think it's, it's not good enough with respect to some of my colleagues who say Parliament must step up and solve the problem. Well, some of us, I think, have been behaving like grown-ups, and I include my two 
colleagues here who we disagree on many other things, <laughs> but on this we are together. Uh, we have tried That's our to goal. do... Uh, <laughs> never had one, darling, but never mind. Um, you know, I'm just going to say this. There's been a lack of candour from the beginning mm. about the realities of Brexit and the choices we made. As Hillary identifies, if you want to do the best for British business and avoid the return of the hard border, you need as close as regulatory alignment as you can possibly get. You do that, it means you become more of a rule taker mm. than a rule maker. That was always the reality and unfortunately Unfortunately, it was never identified, it was never spoken about. Instead, we have stupid slogans like Brexit means Brexit and no deal is better than a, a, heart, than a bad deal, which was an outrage ever to suggest that no deal was anything other than a catastrophe. So Hillary's right, we've got to take that off the table. We've got to have this wretched vote. Uh, there's no debate in my mind about that and we should do that before we rise next week. Um, it will not resolve the problem. You can't resolve the problem other than taking it back to the British people. And when we started this campaign back in March, we launched it in March, and with me, Chuka, Caroline Lucas, and Leila from the Lib Dems, and about 200 people in a very nice place somewhere in Camden, which I thought was the epitome of the liberal metropolitan elite. But don't report that, please. <laughs> it's live streamed, so I'm afraid it's now captured forever. But anyway. <laughs> Bother. <laughs> but we launched it then. I think it made page five of The Guardian, and we were regarded very, very much of being rather eccentric and at the absolute fringes of this entire debate. And goodness me, look where we are now. I mean, Stella's come out in favour of a people's vote. Uh, many Next other colleagues... Haven't you? I thought you had... Yes. No, no, I don't... It's not, it's not a criticism, because... No, no, it's really... People have got to understand, if I may say, uh, the huge pressures within both parties if you in any way deviate from the messages and the lines of your leadership. So we have suddenly found ourselves in a position where we're actually the only way out of the mess. So we can do it, where Hillary says, where there's a will, there's a way. Daniel, <coughs> do you see the sort of prize of Brexit slipping away? We've heard all these sort of distinguished parliamentarians saying, no majority for your sort of Brexit, for a very clean Brexit. Canada-style free trade, you know, that sort of thing, maybe not even a Canada-style free trade agreement, but moving to WTO terms, just trading with the EU on that. Do you, do you think Parliament's going to be able to wrest this away from you and your supporters? Well, let me start by saying that I would actually like, because I have a tidy mm. mind, um, I would like to see a proper withdrawal agreement that divvies up assets and maybe agrees citizens' rights and so on, but does not contain... Um, insulting Carthaginian sovereignty, imposing things about Northern Ireland mm. and stuff like that. So I'm not, the idea that I'm embracing slamming the door and saying mm. goodbye um, in, a, in a sort of reckless fashion is, but whether that's attainable is another mm. question. It might not be attainable. Now, I, my preliminary remarks would mm. be, is a tendency for MPs, and of course I'm not an MP, <laughs> I have that great virtue in common with the rest of you, um, there's a tendency for MPs to see this as a titanic struggle between our two great historical parties over Brexit, uh, the Conservatives on one side, the Labour Party on the other side, whereas actually I think it's just as possible that we're, what we're seeing is a titanic struggle between Brexit and the two great political parties. Uh, and at the moment it's quite possible that Brexit is winning. So I'd just like to say that in my assumptions, and what I'm going to say, I'm not assuming that the party system is going to stay exactly the way it is, it could well shift. Second thing I want to say 
is that I'm going to try and distinguish between future states that are proper end states and, and others that are techniques for getting there. So a proper end state is that we sign a withdrawal agreement or that we reverse Article 50, we um, revoke Article mm. 50 and stay in the European Union. Um, a, a people's vote, um, a general election, things like that, they're obviously not end mm. states, they're techniques for getting mm. somewhere. So if you just look at the end states, the, the one thing I feel comfortable in agreeing with the Prime Minister about is that there are really only three. Um, there is to sign the deal that's on the table, um, to revoke Article 50, which is now in our power, uh, and remain a, a somewhat humiliated and crushed member of the European Union, but it's a perfectly legal and possible thing that Parliament could decide to do, or to do nothing. And if you do nothing, we will just leave on the 29th of March without a withdrawal agreement in place. And I don't think there are any other options, really. Norway, and it's quite interesting to watch the trajectory of Norway, and I think this will happen also to the second referendum in the next couple of weeks, uh, or the people's vote. I'm not trying to make, I'm not trying to be, I'm happy to call it what you like. Um, the, um, uh, Norway, about three weeks ago, suddenly had this burst of life. Norway was the future. Everyone was gathering around Norway. And then people started poking at Norway. It's off the shelf, you see. But then, of course, it wouldn't do the job. So it had to have a customs union attached. So now it wasn't off the shelf. So the next thing is it gets more... Then, then the People's Vote campaign come in and decide they're not in favour of Norway. So you get splitism, and everyone starts falling apart. And I regard Norway as sort of dead. And I think the second referendum idea, or the People's mm. Vote idea, is really going to go in a similar trajectory over the next couple of weeks as people start asking what the question is. Now, I'm anticipating here, I'm speaking before Stella, and I think she may try to address a means of doing that, but I, I, if she'll forgive me anticipating her, um, as I understand her position, I'm, and if I'm traducing you at all, please forgive me. But it just, You'll have a right to reply, Stella, don't worry. It happens, I've been Go called first. Go traduce and then Stella. It is that you're now. going to have some sort of great assembly of the great and the good representing our, all our institutions that is going to sit for several years, possibly, as it did in <laughs> Scotland, uh, and try and work out what the question is. But there is a real difficulty about the question, because a question of vote for the withdrawal agreement, which nobody wants, and Parliament won't vote for, so it isn't a real option, and remain disenfranchises 30 40% of the population. Uh, a triple vote done in a complicated fashion. How do you answer the question, do you want to leave or remain, and then ask a second question about the terms, when the answer to the first question might depend on the terms? I mean, it's astonishingly complicated to, to get any um, consent, I think, to what the question would be, and I suspect that will slip out of the way. And in addition, I think, members of the House of Commons are actually quite terrified of having a second referendum, because it will oblige them to articulate a position. I mean, Hillary, you could tell me, in, in a <laughs> straight choice between the withdrawal agreement and remain, how would the leader of your party vote? Oh, Very difficult to work that out. He'd be, he'd be in a conundrum. And, and, and who's, who, by the way, would be campaigning for the withdrawal agreement? Would it be Mrs May from the back benches? Would she be leading a solitary campaign round the country, arguing for a withdrawal agreement that has been universally rejected? <laughs> Almost impossible to conceive how Parliament is going to rally around something like that. And, and yet you have the law. You have a lot of people going around, in my view, in a slightly panicky way in the House of Commons, saying no deal is impossible, so there must be something else. I doubt they will actually find um, a coalition to put that something else together. I think the only way in which you can get the withdrawal agreement through, it's not quite dead, 
would be if the Labour Party changed its stance. I see no sign of the Labour Party doing that. I'm happy to be corrected, but I see no sign of the Labour Party doing that. The only other way is if you had what I call the Oliver Letwin government of national salvation to crush Brexit, where a significant part of the Conservative Party and a certain part of the Labour Party split off to form some sort of centrist coalition government. I don't rule anything out, but I regard that as being mildly fantastical because I don't know who'd serve in it, um, who'd be willing to do that, because they'd have to face the people after Brexit, and you couldn't carry on like that. You'd have to have a general election, and I think they'd be wiped out. So I just see us sliding. My analogy, analogy should be banned. Mm. This is my last comment. <laughs> analogy should be banned. There are so many bad analogies in discussion of Brexit that are highly misleading, from divorce to all sorts of things. But my analogy is that the members of the House of Commons imagine that they are a kaleidoscope <coughs> rearranging themselves to find a solution, whereas in fact, while they are pieces in a kaleidoscope, they don't realize that they're actually inside a funnel which is very well oiled and they're going in one direction only and that is that they will not find an agreement and we will leave under domestic and international law on the 29th of March and you know it'll be okay. Okay <coughs> that's a good challenge to our panelists. Stella do you, are you envisaging this sort of great and the good deliberating for a number of years to find a magisterially consensual uh, way through, or quite what, what was your idea? That God, no, I think, I think we can find a common point of agreement both in terms of most MPs, indeed most commentators, and most of the British public that thought of Brexit continuing ad infinitum. Uh, I think of Brexit as like the Monty Python foot. It's come down on absolutely everything else. It's squashing everything else out of our mind. There are big mm. challenges in our country and yet we go round and round with the same debates, the same conversations. Um, I don't disagree with a lot of what um, Daniel and, and obviously what Hilary and, and Anna have said. I guess I'm looking at this from this at the other end of the telescope, which is there are very strongly held convictions in Parliament about what the outcome should be. There are very strong disagreements about what the outcome should be. Um, if we cannot make progress in terms of resolving what the outcome should be. And I think it's, it's just simply very clear. I, I have to say, Daniel, I do disagree with you about the funnel. I agree with you very much about the analogies. And for the, matter, for the record, if I could ban the word pivot, is the word that people keep using as well, I would happily do so. Because if this week has shown us anything, is that everything is up for grabs. So the idea that any of this is a travelator um, just it isn't the case. However, there is, I think, a recognition about impasse, about the fact we are at deadlock. People feel very strongly what the outcome will be. They also all feel very strongly that at some point everybody else is going to see the light that they were right all along. Um, if that isn't going to happen, then what do we do next? And my argument is we are not unique as a democracy facing these challenges. We're not unique as a country having difficult decisions to have to make in which people feel very strongly and you can't find a way through. So can we learn from other countries in how they have resolved these kinds of issues, how they have worked to make decisions in the face of seemingly intractable and strongly held beliefs? For me, then, that isn't actually about um, the great and the good, as Daniel would put out, but it's the great and the good of the British public. Now, cards on the table. Anna is right. I, I mean, I, I, for a long time, I, I've never inhaled on Brexit. I have to say, I didn't vote for Article 50. I've got completely <laughs> clean hands on all of this because at the time I felt very strongly this is not a process that's going to end well. Um, but, and, you know, and yeah, with four lines of, 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 of text versus the bills that we'd normally seen, it was a big, big red flag to me. However, 
I don't actually think the public are in a conversation about the ins and outs of our relationship with Europe in the way that we are in Parliament. I think the public are in a very simple position, which is to say, look, all of this doesn't look good. You're all very strongly disagreeing mm. about it. But we had a vote, and surely voting mm. should mean something. So you have to address that mm. concern about what voting means and what happens next. And for me, there is a question then about actually how can we involve the public? Because I understand those people who say, we don't really want a people's vote or a second referendum, or whatever you want to call it. You want a different outcome. And this is your route for getting there. And I'm, I, I agree with them. I want a, a different outcome. I don't think that Brexit is in the best interest of Walthamstow. And I'd be remiss to the community of Walthamstow if I didn't stand up and say that. But in that environment, when there isn't the trust and confidence in that process, I think it behoves all of us to say, what do other countries do? Are there other ways of involving the public that might help us move forward, which aren't going to be seen as seeking a particular outcome when the outcomes are so intractable for people and where they stand? And for me, that's a case for learning from other countries around the world where they have used citizens' assemblies to resolve questions of process. Now, to allay Daniel's fears, you could do a citizens' assembly about what happens next on Brexit in six weeks. It would be the great and the good of this country in terms of randomly selected members of the British public being asked to look at the processes that Parliament has. So not the outcome, not to decide for us, because that's ultimately a choice for us as politicians to make but being asked to look at the processes that Parliament is using to see if there is a way forward to break this deadlock. And I simply say, I fear that we could be back here in six weeks' time, still going around this process, still waiting for votes. Uh, like Hillary, I have a level of scepticism, having listened to the Minister yesterday about the government's plans to table votes, and then what might happen next, because we all know that the Prime Minister's deal will not seek support in Parliament. It just won't pass. So actually what matters is what happens next. And I have been talking to all my colleagues saying, absolutely, you feel very strongly about the outcome, but can we find common ground on the process? Because the alternative is the stasis that we're in now. And if we look at other countries, for example, like Ireland, dealing with controversial issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, they have brought the public in to look at what the options are to put to the public, to look at the options to put to Parliament. So not necessarily to have a referendum, though I would want to be able to make the case to a citizens' assembly that that would be a right way forward, but to look at how we're making decisions and help parliamentarians move forward with the consent of the British people. And I would say to all of the different camps in Parliament, and there are many of them, that how we get to that outcome will define that outcome as much as the outcome that you are calling for. Because if we end up having a referendum by default because mm. Parliament cannot address questions of democracy and how we make mm. decisions, any more than if we crash out of Europe without a deal because Parliament cannot address those questions of how we make decisions, the public won't forgive us. And actually, in all of this, the great and the good are the British public. I have tremendous faith in their ability to make sensible and good decisions if we use sensible and good ways of making decisions. If we treat people like children, no wonder we get toddler tantrums. And the first place that you learn that most of all is in Parliament. So I'm here today to suggest that at some stage in all of this, there may be other ways we can involve the British public in how we move things forward that aren't referendums, but are about deliberative, better deepening our process of democracy, and I think it would enhance all of our decision-making to do that. But isn't that just Parliament giving up, basically? Parliament just saying, oh, God, this is too difficult. You know, we're all a bit useless, and we can't work out what to do, and let's just dump our problems on someone else. Isn't this a sort of no, application? Isn't that why we send you all to Actually, I think it's the reverse. It's to recognise that, as Anna says, there is a lot of cross-party mm. working going on right now, 
because the concept of leave and remain, and actually within that various different mm. strands, supersedes almost some of the traditional ideological debates that we've had in Parliament. I think if there was ever a time to recognise that we need to do mm. things differently in our democracy, it is now. And to recognise that that isn't a bad mm. thing, that would be a healthy thing to bring in a public perspective. You know, some people will say to you, look, we can't have a second referendum mm. because we've already had the people have a say. Mm. And they say, look, Parliament should mm. sort everything out. But when you're looking at Parliament recognising that it cannot sort things out for good reason, because MPs feel strongly mm. and rightly about the outcome they want, then the time is to say, well, is there another way of bringing the public in? In Ireland, in Australia, mm. in Canada, in Iceland, they've done this. And actually, it's helped to renew their democracy mm. as well as make difficult decisions. Can I just say, I, actually dis I think I, I disagree with Stella mm. in, in the sense I disagree with her analysis. The problem we have in Parliament is that we have a deeply divided mm. government, as you all know. Mm. And then when you look over to the opposition, we have a front bench that does not represent its backbenchers in the opposition. And I'm not saying, I'm not a tribal Tory mm. by any means. We have, and mm. I, I'm very happy to mm. give my description of my own mm. government, but we can't argue with the fact, I would suggest, that we've got one of the most useless, hopeless oppositions that we've ever seen. And so the tragedy of all Happy of Christmas! This, <laughs> I was going to say, welcome to your world. <laughs> so the tragedy of all of this is that actually there is, well, there was a consensus at the beginning of this, mm. but it was never formed and put together because I'm afraid Theresa never mm. reached out in the way that she should have done. And if she had done that, she would have built the consensus at the beginning instead of having negotiated on her own view of things and then sought to find a consensus at the end of the process when that consensus has gone and it's a huge failing yes. of this entire process. So Hilary, um, just on Anna's point, I know you're not speaking for the Labour front bench, but one of the things that occurs to us is actually the people who are best served in many ways by the Prime Minister's withdrawal agreement are the Labour front bench. I mean, it is, you know, apart from some inconvenient commitments on state aids, which frankly would be a price you'd have to pay for any permanent customs union, I think we could say, it actually looks pretty much like what... I mean, they ought to really be supporting it, oughtn't they? Aren't they just playing sort of pure politics by saying it's no good? You know, the political declaration is elastic enough to include their options on the famous spectrum as the government's options. So, you know, what do you think about the way in which the Labour front bench is handling handling this rather was exposed I thought in the Channel 4 debate which was uh, on Sunday where you know, well, there was that, I, attacks on all sides on I the Labour position. I didn't watch. Mm -hmm. um, look I think I don't really have a problem with the withdrawal agreement. We owe the money, we've got to protect the citizens rights, uh, we must have a transition period. That used to be incredibly controversial. Mm. Yeah. We divided and in the committee says he thought of it first, so he persuaded um, the government. And if you're going to create the problem of the border, mm. which is what the Prime Minister did with her disastrous red lines, you're going to have to have a temporary solution for it, and that's what the backstop is. My, my argument, and our, indeed our front bench's argument, is a, with the political declaration, because it, it's a step into the unknown. Exactly. <coughs> it is a step into the unknown, not because it was impossible to do anything other than that, but because the government steadfastly refused to make choices. Yeah. And, you know, it's been two years of... Um, pretending that we can have everything we want and get rid of everything we don't want. Okay, and that, so, that, so that is the ori that's the origin of it. And if there was clarity of what it is we do want, 
then I think there would be more confidence in where we were heading. In the moment, we're not confident at all. But just listening to the, the contributions that we've heard, time is the first problem that we've got, because whatever the mechanism that is used for working out what possibilities there are, given that there may be, depending on the result tonight, a Tory leadership election, we really are running out of time. And therefore, um, I think it's inevitable we're going to have to extend Article 50. But the EU has always made it very clear, if you want another year to carry on arguing amongst yourselves, no. But if there is a process that could lead to a significant change, either an election or a referendum, or a new government, a new leader of the Conservative Party with a new approach, then I think the EU would be prepared to do that. The importance of the court ruling on Monday is, of course, there is now another mechanism. If the EU were to say, no, you can't, one could revoke for the purposes of the next stage, and then you... Well, wait a second, let me come. Let me finish the sentence, and then, then you can react. Making it quite clear that if in a referendum, which where we may end up, the people vote they're going to leave on no deal basis, then you would resubmit it and go. And if the people voted after all that they wanted to remain, then you, it would be permanently revoked. So there are, if you like, two safety catches that we can use in those circumstances. So Dan, but time yeah. is of the essence. Yeah. Daniel, very quickly on that, then I'm going to go to questions. Daniel, you don't agree with Hillary Clinton? Well, well I just say, you know, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but the court requirement that you um, are doing this in good faith um, and it's meant to be serious and long-term, not necessarily un and un unconditional, I'm not saying necessarily irrevocable, but it, it, you, it's a big ask of the European Union to go to them and say, you've refused <coughs> us what we've asked for by quality, uh, qualified majority vote, um, which is an extension. So we're just now going to go right round you and we're going to abuse a process that's just been given to us to cheer. But you may get away with it. I don't know. Politics is more it's important than law. It's quite interesting because the Article 50 judgment... It's not just straightforward. Yeah, the court mind. judgment didn't use good faith, which the Advocate General did, yes. but it made it clear that this has to be a proper intention to yes. revoke rather yes. than just, yes. oh, my God, we're running out of time. Yes. We need to buy ourselves an extra but you, may, you may get away with it. But it is, by the way, it's unanimity to extend Article 50. It is unanimity to extend. That's unanimity. No, you're correct. It's unanimity to extend. It'll be politics more Okay, we're going to have loads of questions. So let's do very, very short questions, very quick fire. We've got Elliot Nadella with Mike, so let's go here first, and we'll take them in threes, and I won't ask everybody to answer every question. Yes. Katrin Karlwitz, the Deutsche Zeitung. You keep on discussing this, the, the problems that we've this country has had for years and months, but something might change tonight. What changes when Theresa May, or if Theresa May is not Prime Minister anymore tomorrow? Okay. I think she lasts another... Day, doesn't she? Because you don't get replaced. Adela? No, no, yeah, a couple of years. She gets to the new year, which is the important yeah. thing. Um, good morning. Could I ask Daniel Moylan if he could shed any light on the thinking of those in the Conservative Party who feel that a challenge to Theresa May's leadership of the Conservative Party will be helpful at this time of national crisis? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, and straight behind. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> ben Alexander. Um, ben, microphone. Oh, yeah, go I forgot one. Yeah, it's working. The three MPs, all of the contributions, I think, seem to assume that Parliament will get an opportunity at some point to direct what happens. But suppose we get a new leader who decides not to respect the 21st of January date, which apparently they can do, and then decides they want to not follow the deal that we've got. When in the process after that would Parliament next get purchase on what is happening 
uh, through what mechanism and how much, how much time would there be to actually okay. use that? Great questions. Let's, uh, let's go to those very quickly. So, Daniel, the first question addressed to you. Um, why, you know, uh, you're obviously not one of the people who's written, uh, written a letter, but you're probably sort of close to the mindset of the people. Why are they writing, why is this the right time to move on the Prime Minister? What's happened? All right, I just want to um, address the other part of the question first. Yeah. I okay. don't actually think this is, I think it's, uh, the, the other thing I'd abolish mm. along with analogy is hyperbole. This is not a moment of national crisis. The economy is doing quite well. Most people's lives are absolutely fine. There is a huge parliamentary muddle. When there's a national crisis, you'll know about it, okay? And, and you'll actually see the sort of crises that other governments periodically have to deal with, of natural, natural disasters and so forth. This is a parliamentary muddle. Um, but to come back to the answer, to try and answer your question, I, I personally thought that Mrs May should be allowed to stay in office. I wouldn't have been writing a letter. But I think what has happened, and I'm not defending this now, I'm just trying to explain it, is that my sense is that quite a lot of senior centrist and essentially loyalist members of parliament on the conservative benches over the last couple of weeks have been so baffled by the government's tactics about why they were driving the car full out into the brick wall of an obvious failure on the withdrawal agreement that they have just lost confidence in her. And the incompetent handling of the decision to veer out at the very last minute on Monday has just meant that I think now an awful lot of people have thought she's run out of mileage. There's nowhere she can take us. And she's not going to depart. It's very difficult for her to depart from commitment to a withdrawal agreement, which looks as though, in terms of the Commons numbers, it is dead. So uh, whether this is a helpful thing to do or not, I'm just trying to explain why I think it is that the centre of gravity, I suspect, will know, Anna's much closer to yeah, this, but of course, but I think we'll know this evening, but I think the centre of gravity slipped from her over the last couple of weeks because they simply couldn't understand what she was doing. Anna, what do you think is going to happen? What will well, change? We just get this absolutely clear. The people who are seeking to oust the Prime Minister are the usual suspects. They're not the sensible centrists. They are a rump of hard right, hard Brexiteers. They operate as a party within a party. They call themselves the European Research Group. They should have been booted out of the Conservative Party by previous leaders. Uh, and a proper, compassionate, centrist Conservative Party would have then existed um, which would have been able to govern with complete competence and with the confidence of the uh, British people. And instead, these, this small group of, you know, at times, you know, they behave appallingly and they represent only themselves and their warped ideology. And they've blighted my party for decades. I mean, some of them really do need to get a life and they don't have a life because they're obsessed with Europe. The thing is, is that they went and won the um, referendum, which they never thought they would. And in that process, they scooped up people like Boris Johnson, who was always a Remainer, who then found himself, as ever, just wanting to promote his own interests. And he went and backed leave because he thought it would end up on the right side of the party when um, David Cameron inevitably stepped down. We would still be in the EU, but he would have burnished his uh, Eurosceptic new Liberal well, founder. Are you making all this up? Oh, I'm really not. You really oh, are. Oh, I'm seriously and not I'm, making it I'm up. Really I've had the misfortune of, of having conversations <laughs> with were, Boris honestly. Johnson. 
and I know you've worked with him. He's been one of the most appalling foreign secretaries we've ever had the misfortune to have in our country. Daniel, to be fair, didn't work with him. And he is office. fast and has lost a considerable amount of support, not just within the parliamentary party, but in the real world, if I may say, Daniel, which is in constituencies like mine. I represent a marginal seat. My majority is somewhere now over 800 first elected in 2010, beating Labour, as I say, a marginal seat with a majority of 389. And my members no longer support Boris because of his, the way he's conducted himself. But so be under no doubt as to where this threat comes from. It is deeply irresponsible and it's disgraceful. In any event, where we may agree is that there is and has been for some time considerable concern about the leadership uh, of the government. The PM has unfortunately not helped herself. Um, I think there was only myself and Nicky Morgan that said after the June general election, which we lost, people seem to forget mm. this, we actually lost the June 2017 election. We lost over mm. 30 Tory MPs in England and in Wales. Only Nikki mm. and Morgan and I called on the Prime Minister to consider her position. Um, we may have been right, well, we were right then, but we are where we are, and it would be hugely irresponsible for her to be removed from office, but she has to change the way that she has acted. She's got to stop being stubborn and she's got to stop doing things in her own way. She's got to work with her cabinet and put the national interest absolutely at the foremost. She's got to bring this vote back and then she's got to look to the future. And the only way forward, as I say, is a people's vote. And finally, I'll just say this, to say there isn't a crisis is probably I mean, I'm sorry, but in the real world, Daniel, that most of us live in, you can bet your bottom dollar this is one of the worst crises that our country has ever Wages are rising, faced. employment is rising out there. And most people are bored to death. That's Brexit, a different and matter. The idea that there's a national crisis about this. There is you, a, the trouble there is, is with people bubble. like you is you don't have constituents. Mm. I do. I listen to my constituents and they look at this situation in increasing horror and the potential damage in the long term to politics in this country should not be underestimated. So Anna, though, the final, I mean, if the Prime Minister is... No, loses the confidence vote tonight. She won't lose. But let's just hypothetically, what are your members? What do you, I mean? Your, what are your members going to think of that? What are your so because they they clearly my matter because so your a big association. No, no, what do they think? Because they're clearly the electorate. If we're going to get yeah, somebody, yeah, yeah, good you know, point. Oh. I mean, I sometimes get agitated yeah. because, I, as much as I like my association members, or or one hundred and ninety of them. You know, they do not represent Conservative voters and they don't represent all my constituents, which is my job. Um, I think they would be horrified if the Prime Minister uh, loses tonight. Uh, and in that event, um, I don't know who's, who would step forward and find it onto the final ballot paper. But all I can say is, God help us if it's Boris Johnson. I'm out of the party at that moment. OK, let's just go to Hillary and Stella on this scenario that was put forward that, you know, codename Boris, somebody from that... A uh, faction of the party does come through the Conservative leadership thing. The rest of us can only watch. If we're not Conservative members, we don't get a say. Not MPs, not members. Uh, emerges as Prime Minister and then just decides to go on this sort of route and says, withdrawal act says we're leaving. The EU can come to me if they want to manage no deal. Uh, I might pay them a bit of money, might do this, do something on citizens. Uh, that's fine. That's uh, obliged to do it. What can Parliament actually 
do in those circumstances? You know, government doesn't bother to schedule a vote because the assurances were given by a previous administration that nice Mr Walker and things like that. What would Parliament do in those circumstances? Well, it's a very good, it's a very good question uh, that you've asked. I feel an, another humble address coming along. <laughs> uh, but you're right, because there are three triggers in Section 13 of the Act, which leads to a <coughs> statement and then a motion in neutral terms that is no longer a motion in neutral terms, thanks to Dominic's mm -hmm. amendment is being... No, it hasn't gone through yet. Pardon? Yes, 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 yes. Dominic's, yes it does. And there was a bit of a debate about it a couple of days ago and the speaker, the speaker got up and said, it stands. Yes. So have a look at the hand side. He said it stands. Now, the first is that the withdrawal agreement is put and defeated. That's trigger one. The second is the Prime Minister announces by the 21st of January we haven't been able to reach a draft political agreement. And the third is there hasn't been a draft political agreement by the 21st of January. So those are the three triggers in the legislation. Now, I think if a new Prime Minister came in and, as you suggest, um, and said, well, we're not, we're not proceeding with this, I'm not putting it to the vote, well, the question is, what is your policy? And for me, one of the most telling moments, if we are talking about yeah. Boris Johnson of the last two weeks, is watch his speech where he was repeatedly challenged by members mm. of his own party about the fact, as far as I can see, he does not have a policy for the Brexit that he says he wishes to pursue. And I just want to respond to Daniel's point about it's all fine and nobody's worried. We've spent, since October 2016, taking evidence from people who make things, who sell things, who export things. And I'm deluged all the time by people who want to come to me and talk about their worries and their fears, because they know how it works today and they have no idea how it is going to work if we leave without an agreement. Where, I mean, I know the trouble is when you raise examples, we're told, oh, you're just scaremongering. Yeah. I think the question that people have to ask themselves is a terribly simple one. Why is it that those who don't make things run things yeah. know much better than people who do Absolutely. what it is that they should be worried about if, if the whole basis of that trade and that commerce over 45 years that's grown up is imperiled by suddenly pulling the plug on lots of different areas of our economy. And if we could just agree that there is a problem, if we walk out the door with no deal, that would be a really helpful starting point. Now, whether a citizens' mm -hmm. assembly, as Stella suggests, could say, yeah, we see there's a problem too, that would at least be a step forward. But I'm afraid I think there's some people who, in the face of the evidence, would never ever admit yes. that that way lies real damage for the British economy and makes it more difficult for whoever is a government, and I long to see a change of government, mm. to address many of the reasons why people voted for leave. And, and if we're going to resolve this, that we have to understand. And there's a trade-off here between sovereignty, self-control, self-determination, and the necessity for international cooperation in the modern world to solve the problems that we face together. And what the referendum said mm. was, we think the balance is wrong. And I get that. We all have to get that as politicians. Europe needs to get it. Because although Europe sits there and says, well, Britain, war, we're fine, they're not fine. And they know that the European Union is going to have to change. Yeah. Now, I'd much rather Britain was inside, helping bring that change about. And if we do return, if the people vote to overturn the result of the referendum, then we shouldn't slink back in and say, <coughs> sorry, we had a bit of a senior moment, now where were we? <laughs> we, sh we should say, now look folks, 
we've been through what you could have, been th have gone through and might still go through. Now, what are we going to do about this in the interest of the people we represent? And that is the big political question that Brexit is about. Mm. So I'm going to go to some more questions. I'm going to bring Stella in first. So let's go here. Let's do a front row sort of thing. You know, if you go to the far end and then we'll go, yeah. Uh, Robin Butler, House of Lords. Can I just first of all ask Stella <laughs> why she is confident that a citizens' assembly wouldn't reach exactly the same impasse as Parliament has reached? But also then could I ask, if um, Theresa May uh, loses the vote of confidence tonight, isn't it the case that the DUP would have a decisive effect on the uh, election of the next leader? Because if the uh, Conservative Party elected the wrong leader, they'd lose a vote of confidence in the House and then there'd be a Labour government. Um, well, there'd be a general election. Yes, in here. Yep. Hi, um, Adam Payne from Business Insider. My question isn't for Stella, sorry. It's for the no, Conservatives okay. uh, on the panel. It's just that given how the Conservative government has handled this process, <coughs> the egos in Cabinet, the strategic errors, the ignorance and at times insults towards our negotiating partner and given the behavior which Anna you described as atrocious earlier atrocious sorry um, of some MPs in the party at least 48 <coughs> MPs we've learned this morning why does this Conservative Party ever deserve to govern again okay that's quite existential yes final one there uh, Robert Morland I'm a former member of the European Parliament surely the organization that has played a straight bat throughout this has actually been the European Council through its Mr. Barnier for whom I have from past experience a very high regard and what worries me throughout this is I cannot see and certainly in terms of the Labour Party even with its red lines what they can do to change their position. I mean, given on the Irish question, they did look at all the alternatives before they came to their conclusion. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to this. Stella, um, Robin's question, um, you know, won't the poor citizens just be as baffled at finding a way through as, uh, as everybody yeah, else? I Why think do you think that's, that's a reflection of one of the challenges that you're seeing on this panel and that you're seeing in Parliament, and that I would gently say to Daniel, if you think people think things are going well, the one thing about politicians, one thing about MPs, I hate it when people say that politicians are out of touch with the public because we do nothing but spend all our time being in touch with the public. We might not like what they have to say, we might find it difficult what they have to say, but we are hyper aware of what's being said in our constituencies. And I can tell you the people in my community are really frightened about what 2019 might bring. And that's not just the EU citizens, it's not just the people who work in manufacturing, it's that general sense of chaos. Look, people have never yeah. trusted politicians. Go and look at the Hogarth yeah. pictures. We've always been figures of fun. But now they're looking at all of us and going, well, even if I could believe what you want to say, could you make that stuff happen anyway? Because the way in which we make decisions, the way in which we conduct ourselves, I wish people didn't mm. think it was a few bad apples. They mm. do think all of us are up to shenanigans. And the questions mm. before about, well, will you have a vote at all? All of that is crippling goodwill. But also the way in which we operate in Parliament cripples mm. goodwill. Because the way in which we make decisions is conflict-heavy. Certainly what, what people see. Actually, most of the business that's done in Parliament mm. isn't done across mm. the PMQ board. It's done in select mm. committees. It's done in a mm. cross-party way. Anna and I have worked together on things like 
uh, abortion rights women in Northern Ireland, all of that consensual way of working and finding ways through and finding different points of agreement, that's what a good, healthy democracy does. But our democratic practices don't adhere to that. Now, what citizens' assemblies are is a different way of working, mm. the way in which you ask questions, the way in which you look at questions, the way in which it's facilitated. We don't have institutional knowledge of that at a national mm. level in this country. We do it at a local government level. We've done it on health and social care mm. recently. We do it in mm. councils all the time. They do it in other countries, and it's the way in which you run the process that helps get people to making decisions. So if you had one on, say, what should the process next be, or if you had one, if we do get to having a referendum, on what the question should be, the way in which it's designed in itself, I'd really encourage you to go and watch one and be part of one before we say no, because the alternative is that we are building into our politics a level of conflict, and I can promise you the public are watching this. You know, we might be arguing and having contemporary debates in Parliament all the time, the public are watching because they're frightened, because they get that chaos isn't good for anybody, and in particular, chaos is bad for very vulnerable people in society. And it's your question, Mom, about the what happens when the Prime Minister goes or stays. I have to say, I think even if she wins, Anna, if the result isn't resounding, that in itself would be pretty telling. And it, it raises questions for my party about no confidence votes and, and actually the Labour Party is more divided, honourably divided I would say, about whether or not a second referendum or what the outcomes are because people are listening to the public and the public are, are still so, unsure about all of this. Yep. The biggest thing yep. that happens is the clock keeps mm. winding down yeah, and that's the worry for all of us. So if we can't make progress on outcomes, and you've heard that today because nobody's come forward with an idea that's going to win enough votes in Parliament as it is, we have to make progress on our processes and that includes not just on Brexit, but how we conduct ourselves generally. There is a reason why the far right is on the rise, not just in this country, but across Europe, because people are looking at politics and going, does it make a difference? And they're angry. They're angry because they want to be able to make changes in their local communities, in their countries. And if we can't show a better way of making decisions, we don't deserve to govern at all. Thank you very much, Stella. I'm going to come on to Anna. And Robin's second question sneaky in too, about the DUP. Will they be sort of watching or will they just care about the policy? Will the, they care the, about the... The DUP leader? have got themselves into a terrible, terrible pickle. Understandably, I understand why they don't like the backstop, but like so many of their view, they have failed to wake up to the, and understand the realities of Brexit. Mm. They now find themselves in a position where by opposing the withdrawal agreement, they have lost support of the business community and the farming community in Northern Ireland, they have always prided themselves as being the party of those two communities. The DUP desperately need a way out of the awfulness of their own mess. They will not seek that by way of a general election because they are not that stupid. And they know that if there were a general election, not only could it mean that Jeremy Corbyn might get into number 10, but they would lose seats in any event in Northern Ireland because of the problem they've got into. I think it, they would never ever say it publicly but my view is that actually what they really want is to get out of the mess by having a people's vote because it is the only way out of the mess. And they may, it could be said, say those things privately. Secondly, in relation to the EU, absolutely they have played with an entirely straight back. They, from the very outset, made the options clear to the British mm. government, and I think they were just appalled, perhaps that's a strong term, but they were somewhat shocked at the lack, again, of waking up and understanding the reality of the situation. 
and finally to the young man here who asks about why would the Conservative Party <coughs> be electable again unless we deal with this inherent problem of this rump within the party get back to being in the centre of British politics which is always the place where you win elections unless we get this back to the people get our um, party back, but also get this matter back to the British mm. people where they vote for our continuing in the European Union because that is undoubtedly the best mm. deal that we have with the European Union, then we are doomed. If we do all those things, we can salvage things and we continue, can continue to govern and be a great party. But if we don't, we are indeed doomed. Hilary, I want to ask you a slightly different question, but coming off Adam's question, which is about, you can answer those as well, but uh, it's always intrigued me. Labour wants a general election, but what manifesto does Labour fight on effectively what would be a Brexit general election? What on earth unites your party that you think you can write a manifesto to get rid of whatever? Is, there, is it really plausible that there's one manifesto? Certainly my MP uh, fought on a very different manifesto, which is, you know, to the one that Labour stood on. Uh, you'd be very hard to read her literature and think she was anything other than not respecting the result of the referendum or, you know, seeking whatever. So how on earth is this a great way for Labour? Won't Labour just be revealed to be as split as the Conservatives are? Well, it's a very good question because there are differences of view. I mean, I think we... we there was <laughs> honourable differences of view, as Stella pointed out, yeah. by contrast yeah. to the Conservative Party. Sorry, I just didn't want to interrupt you. Either. No, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for honourable differences. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm all, all in favour of honourable differences of view because what are we grappling with here on the way forward? It's on the one hand respecting the result of the referendum, which we all committed to do. Now, I did vote for Article 50 because. I mean, in Leeds, Leeds, just as a city, marginally voted more Remain than it did Leave. But I think as a, um, a Democrat, we had an obligation to do that because the alternative at that point, and some people wrote to me and said, you don't have to do this, was to say to the people who we weren't just uh, asking, give it a quick show of hands, having trouble. Yeah, that's interesting, right? We'll go back to what we were doing. It was quite clear that we passed the responsibility to them on such a major change. And I felt that we had to uh, give effect to that. The problem has been that the referendum result in this sense was never clear because there's a raging argument about what leaving the European Union means. Everyone accepts we're leaving the institutions, and that's what I think it meant, but it did not determine the future of our economic relationship. Quite. If you ask Norway, are, the people of Norway, are you a member of the European Union? No, what a funny question. Yeah. And so if you were to argue for a relationship like Norway, and people say, but that's staying in the European Union, you say, well, I don't think it is, actually. So you've got that argument over here versus a, a lot of people in the party, our members and members of parliament, uh, who have been arguing increasingly loudly for a people's vote. And a year and a half ago, a lot of those MPs would have bitten your hand off for EA in a customs union, yep. single market customs union campaign. Absolutely. Well, that's sort of gone now because they think there's a possibility of getting a people's vote which might reverse the result and lead to a different outcome. Now I'm not one of those who has thus far been calling for a people's vote because it is fraught with difficulty and it, it goes back to the point that Daniel was making about the question. 
What is the question going to be? And if you have a, a hard, clean Brexit question, who is going to articulate what it means? Because you can look at Remain, you know what that is, you can read all 585 pages and 27 pages of the political declaration and try and understand what it means, but I don't know what this third kind of Brexit is, and so the dilemma for Parliament, and indeed for the party in answering that question, is how are we going to balance those two things? Now, I think we probably won't end up with a general election because I doubt that any Conservative MPs are going to vote for one. And coming back to your question earlier, sir, which is, that I think, the key, if the vote happens and it's defeated, the DUP has indicated, well, once it's defeated, then we're not so inclined to make trouble for the government on a vote of confidence as we would be if it wasn't cleared out of the way. So um, I don't think that problem is going to arise. So, Daniel, do you think the Conservatives, I mean, after all, you're a Conservative in Kensington, elected a Labour MP. I know, you know friends of ours who canvassed for the Conservatives there said they were getting doors slammed in their yeah. face um, because so many people are married to EU citizens or are EU citizens and whatever. So do you think, actually, that the price of Brexit may be Conservatives out of office for a long time? That's what happened after Black Wednesday. Or, indeed, the party splitting? I mean, has Europe putting intolerable strains on the sort of broad church coalition that is the Conservatives? Um, I don't think the party is going to split formally, but I do think Anna um, is right in, in one sense, that depending on what the outcome of all of this is, uh, it is likely <coughs> that the character of the party will change over time. So it will either cease to have a more Eurosceptic mm. wing, which of course she would like to see booted out, um, or it will move in a more Eurosceptic direction. But that's a sort of organic, osmotic process that, you know, goes on over time as people are selected mm. and give up and things mm. of that sort. Um, so I, I think that's more likely how it, uh, how it works. I, I, I suspect, Jill, if I may, I, I'm going to give us final remarks. Yeah. Or I'll be on our final remarks. I was going to actually ask you all as final remarks, Later, which I'm going to do I, I now. Say, which I'm going to do it. now. I'll tell you what my final but, remark question is: If the prime minister survives tonight uh, and you know goes on to fight into the new year, uh, but gets very little out of the European Council tomorrow and Friday, um, what should she do next? That's well, be my... I, I. So final remark, and then you can answer my question. Um, Helpful advice from our panel. Well, I, I think the answer to the question sort of is the final remark. Mm. Is that I don't. What, what, we're, what we're in is a sort of uh, a structural, numerical type of problem, mm. rather than the problem about personalities. I don't think, as everyone agrees, mm. the parliamentary arithmetic mm. and the choices mm. facing us don't change if you either confirm the existing prime minister or change the prime minister. So I don't actually think that that is the crucial determinant. Um, I, I just sit here thinking that the three people in, in front of me, if I come back, if I leave aside process issues, and I'm happy to add to my list of processes a citizen's assembly as a, as a possibility on top of a, um, a referendum and so on, if I leave aside the process issues, we're still left with asking the question, where is the coalition? Where is the numerical assembly? for um, returning to the European, or remaining in the European Union, which is one option, um, or agreeing a deal with the European Union, an exit deal, which in current circumstances 
we are told, credibly, the European Union will insist is fundamentally the deal that we've got. And we've heard three parliamentarians of great skill, capacity and experience, way beyond my abilities and knowledge, who, I, if I may, without wanting to criticise them in any way, have, have notably failed to answer the exam question that you set for them, Jill, at the beginning. And, and I hope you'll be scoring their cards towards the end and with the same vigour in which you scored the cards of the people speaking on question time next to you. Because they haven't answered the question. They have not represented where it is Parliament can find a coalition for any of the feasible end states that we are facing around the 30th of March. Okay, Hillary, so... Right, well, one, one way of answering, and it's a fair point, yeah. Daniel, is to put a range of options to Parliament <coughs> once the deal is defeated. That's one way. But to come to your question, what should the Prime Minister do if she survives, I personally don't think that... Uh, and I won't use the, the P word that, that Stella said we should ban. I can't see the Prime Minister with any credibility standing up and said, I've had a rethink. Right, we're off to Norway and a customs union. Is that okay with you? I, I just don't think she could. But I tell you what I think she could do, which would be wholly consistent with the argument she's put forward thus far. It is to say Parliament is deadlocked. Once it's been shown that Parliament is deadlocked and cannot reach agreement, if that's what happens on an alternative way forward, uh, I think uh, there is much more support out there for my deal than there is in this place. And in a way, I'm going to go to the ultimate citizens' assembly. I'm going to put my deal to the British people in a referendum. And against which alternative? Well, you then... you choice. Well, indeed. Is it my... Is it my do we have a two-part referendum? Do we have a multiple-choice referendum? Now, those are all pretty... Yeah. Uh, not really quite difficult and tricky uh, outcomes. But when you think about it, maybe for both of the main parties, because there are differences of view and moving one way or the other and resolving and answering yeah. the questions that you've perfectly reasonably put uh, this morning, Jill, is quite difficult. It might in the end suit all the parties to put it back to the people. And that, I think, is the one route forward for the Prime Minister, given the policy she's advanced thus far and given the belief she clearly has that this represents the best deal. And then the people will ultimately make the decision, which might be quite fitting given we're sitting here today because they made the decision they did in June 2016. Now, whether that will happen, I have no idea. And if it's a different... Prime Minister, well, who knows? So, Anna, it's it's quite difficult to do a referendum for Parliament to order a referendum because government needs to bring forward legislation yeah, to, to do it. it. Yeah, yeah. And it's Parliament quite difficult legislation and stuff. You know, a couple of backbenchers can't really sort of just cobble it together and mm. pass it as a private members' bill or something. So, is your route forward that the government finally bows to reality and brings forward some legislation, or how do you get to Absolutely. where you want to get to? I mean, if you've lost faith in politics, just bear this in mind. When a conservative like me says, I agree with Hillary Benn, you know, there is a consensus there. Um, and there is this cross party coalition that, like it or not, is forming on this the most important decision since the Second World War. Look, of course, if Parliament finds a will, has a will, they will find a way. We can mandate the government to, get, bring, for, to bring forward the legislation. You know my view. I think she will survive tonight. She's then got to have the vote, as Hillary says. She can then, she absolutely with credibility can say, just as Hillary's described, put it back to the British people, 
you need obviously to have remain on the mm. ballot paper and then you have to have a credible, deliverable e uh, Brexit deal on the ballot paper. I suggest it would be her withdrawal agreement. Mm. The government can then campaign for that withdrawal agreement. People like me <coughs> will campaign to stay within the European mm. Union and Lord only knows what the official Labour Party's front bench would campaign for in those circumstances. Stella, and is there any role for people actually deciding what the <coughs> questions yeah, would be? I, Could they do that quickly? I, I'm a Democrat as well as a socialist. I never think you should be frightened of talking and asking the public questions. But I think Daniel, I mean, the point mm. about Daniel's question is mm. it's like the Schrodinger's mm. cat essay question mm. because the point is there isn't a mm. consensus for anything at the mm. moment. There's a consensus against things. There's a consensus mm. probably about having yeah. no no deal. And there's probably a growing consensus about possibly some sort of extension in Article 50, some more time, recognising that any option now will need time. But beyond that, to get to 320, even on a second referendum, which is what I and Anna would like, there isn't the numbers there yet. So I'm simply saying there have to be things that shift the process because the outcomes are things that people cannot agree on. Maybe you could have a citizens' assembly that would decide what the question was to give people the legitimacy of how that decision is made. Because again, I go back to Anna, how we get to what the outcome is, is going to be critical to the future of this country as much as the actual outcome. The people won't forgive us if we treat them like children because they're looking at us and thinking you're all a bunch of toddlers right now. Um, I'm going to close it there because I realise we've run over, but it's been a really good debate between the panel. Could you please thank all the panel very much?